Well, good afternoon. Uh, my name is John Minan. Um, as Dan introduced, I am a campus pastor uh, for Reformed University Fellowship. It's a campus ministry of this denomination at the University of Vermont, up in Burlington, Vermont. It's great to be back with you uh, on the Sunday. Uh, every week, um, I, when school's in session, I get to open up the Bible with college students and sort of lead a weekly worship service on campus, and we also have time for Bible study. And Psalm 115 is one of those texts that we looked at together this spring, and I felt like the God's Spirit really was with us as we looked at Psalm 115, and a lot of sort of good things came of it. And so I just wanted to come today and share some of that uh, with you. Uh, I would encourage you to just keep your Bibles open to Psalm 115. We're going to be working our way through it. So um, if you would like to do that now, it's, again, it's on page 510. But as we sort of work our way through the psalm, uh, there really are sort of three sections, and those three sections correspond with three points. That's convenient. It's not the first three-point sermon I'm sure you've heard uh, preached in this place before. But those three points uh, go like this. Verses 1 to 8, we bend uh, towards our idols. Verses 9 to 13, God bends towards us. And finally, as a result, verses 14 to 18, we will bend towards God from this time forth and forevermore. So again, verses 1 to 8, we bend towards our idols. 9 to 13, God bends towards us. And as a result, we will bend towards God from this time forth and forevermore. But let's start at the beginning with verse 1. Verse 1 reads, not to us, O Lord, not to us, right, but to your name, Give glory. Now the word glory in this verse, in this sentence, is the Hebrew word kabod, which literally means weightiness. Right? To give glory or to recognize glory or something as glorious is to give or to recognize weightiness, right? Significance. The English phrase, this matters, carries the same sense. Right? Because matter is weighty. Right? It is substantive. It is solid. And something that matters is something that is important, right? is significant, is serious. It has gravity or it has weight. Right? It draws us in. Right? It pulls us sort of into its orbit. Why? Because it matters. Right? It has glory. The first thing that we see from this psalm in verse 1 is that we are prone to give glory to anything and really anyone besides God. Right? Not to us. Not to us, right? For emphasis. Right? That's our default. Not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name, right? Give glory. It's easy for us to wake up and to go through our days as if we are living in a movie. And the movie, of course, is all about me, right? I'm the star of the show. And I hate to break it to you, but you all are sort of extras or supporting cast. But look, you are doing it to me too, right? We are all living out of sort of this worldview. It's the default setting. Me, right, at the glorious center of the universe. Instead of putting God there at the center, we put ourselves there or something or someone else uh, at the center, right, in his place. I want you to picture four people holding on to a bedding sheet at its four corners. 
And now I want you to picture somebody putting a bowling ball at the center of that bedding sheet. What happens to the bedding sheet when you put this weighty thing at the center of it? Begins to fold in on it, right? Begins to fold in on that weighty thing and everything begins to bend and slide towards it. What is true of bowling balls and bedding sheets is true of us. Right? Every single one of us is like this bedding sheet with a bowling ball at its center. We are all bending towards, sliding towards something, towards someone. The question is not, do you have a weighty thing at the center of your life, right? A bowling ball. The question is, what is that thing? What is the weighty, glorious thing at the center of your life? If it isn't God, it is, by definition, right, a God substitute. What, a Bible, what the Bible calls, right, an idol. And this thing could be anything, you know, or anything. Yeah, it could be anything. Sometimes things that are good. The language of idolatry uh, appears uh, in verse 4, and it continues uh, through verse 8. Now, when this psalm was written, people were literally fashioning gods out of silver and gold and bowing down to them. And that still happens in certain parts of the world. Uh, I've seen it uh, with my own eyes in places like India and Nepal and Thailand. But you don't have to, be a, uh, to worship a statue to be an idol worshiper. Right? Idol worship comes in all shapes and sizes. An idol simply is anything more important to you than God. Right? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek uh, to give you what only God can give. See, we worship idols because we think that they can give us significance and security. They can give us safety and fulfillment. And as I mentioned, just about anything can be an idol, even and especially good things. Power and approval, money and success, beauty, marriage, religion, politics, fill in the blank. All of these things can very readily right, become idols. They become idols when we make them ultimate things. The minute we give them glory. Right? The minute that we give them supreme weight in our lives. And when we do that, right, everything begins to bend and slide towards it. In these verses, the psalmist explains that idols have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They have feet, but they don't walk. Right? Contra the living God, idols are dead. They don't have life in themselves. And then comes the shattering conclusion in verse 8. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Right? Simply put, we turn into what we worship. 
we turn into what we worship. You worship the living God, and what you will experience is life, right? Zoe, life as it was meant to be lived. More life, not less. But if you worship something dead or dying that doesn't have life in itself, the opposite will be true. You will become dead too. In his now famous uh, commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, the late author, David Foster Wallace, declared, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Everybody has a bowling ball, right? The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. The insidious things about these forms of worship, Wallace says, is that they are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever fully being aware that that is what you're doing. He's saying what Psalm 115 is saying, that slowly but surely they blind us, right? They deafen us and make us feel cold and numb just like today's psalm says that they will. But how does this happen? Like, practically speaking, how does this happen? Let's consider a few examples. Three is a nice number, okay? What happens to us when we put the bowling ball of money, right, at the center of our lives? Well, sure enough, when we put this weighty thing at the center of our lives, everything else will begin to bend towards it. And as it bends towards it, we're going to experience a tunneling of vision, right? A loss of perspective. It's very easy for us to forget just how wealthy we really are. Pastor Tim Keller writes, and I quote, Once you are able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools and participate, participate in its social life, you will find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. Of course, you don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. You compare yourself to those in your bracket. And as a result, most Americans think of themselves as middle class, and only 2% call themselves upper class. But the rest of the world is not fooled." End quote. Okay, you may or may not know this, but if you make more than $32,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of income earners worldwide. More than $32,000 a year puts you in the top 1%. You see, worship of money can blind us, but it can deafen us too. It can deafen us to the cries of our loved ones who want us to put our work done down and spend more time with them. And it can deafen us to the cries of reason that enough is enough. You know, famously, J.D. Rockefeller was asked by a reporter how much money was enough money. His answer, do you know it? One more dollar. That's enough. I just need one more dollar. Now, for some context, you need to know that when he said that, his fortune was worth $383 billion. Putting that in today's dollars, he was three times wealthier than Jeff Bezos. And yet, I need one more dollar. You see, it blinds us and it deafens us, but it makes us numb too. When we put money at the center of our lives, when we live for that glorious thing, it can become very easy to forget what it's like to be poor. 
We isolate ourselves in wealthy enclaves. We become disconnected. We quite literally lose touch. We lose feeling, empathy, blind, deaf, numb. That's just one example. Let's try on another for size. What happens when we put beauty or sexual allure at the center of our life? That, that's the thing I need to have. That's the thing that I'm going to live for. Well, ironically, in the pursuit of body image perfection, just about all that we can see are our flaws. All that we can hear is the voice of shame telling us that we're not good enough, not strong enough, not thin enough, not hot enough. All that we can feel is that we're not enough. One more. Success. How does idol worship of success strip us of our senses and make us blind, deaf, and numb? Well, consider these contemporary examples. In a recent HBO special, Lady Gaga, who's a, for those of you not in the know, right, she's a pretty popular star, right? Lady Gaga's about to take to the stage at Madison Square Gardens. And in this HBO special, you can hear a crowd just chanting her name, ready and excited to see her. But in this sort of vignette, all we can see is Lady Gaga sitting in a chair, and she's sitting in front of a mirror while people do her makeup and her hair. And she's looking into a mirror. That's all that she can see is her image sort of reflected back to herself. And she is crying. She says, I still feel like a loser kid in high school. And it's crazy. Because we're at the garden. But I still feel like a loser kid in high school. In a sense, my friends, she's blind. In her late 20s, Mariah Carey had accumulated more number one hits than anyone except Elvis Presley and the Beatles. And an interviewer asks her, what is left for you to accomplish? And she doesn't hesitate. She says, happiness. And the interviewer is thrown off. He says, how can this be true? Right? How with such great success and so much talent and so many fans and so much applause and so much money, how can you not be happy? And without a second's thought, she says, I can hear a thousand praises, but just one criticism. And the one criticism overrules the thousand praises. My friends, she's deaf. Not to pick on a hometown hero, but in 2005, the same year of that interview, Tom Brady did an interview uh, with 60 Minutes. At this point in his life, he had won three Super Bowls. He was then married, and still is, to the world's top supermodel. He was achieving an annual household income of $76 million per year. But I want you to listen to what Tom Brady says. In this interview, he asks himself, why do I have three Super Bowl, Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? See, I've reached my goal, my dream, my life, but it has got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, it can't be all that it's cracked up to be. Right? Numbness. We become what we worship. You worship the living God and you will become more fully alive. 
But if you worship an idol, blind, deaf, and numb. Like an addiction, we'll take more and more greater risks to get an ever-diminishing satisfaction from the thing that we crave. And when we begin to recover, we ask, what was I thinking? How could I have been so blind? This brings us to section number two, right? And to point number two, verses 9 to 13. And let's reread it. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Now, there's a lot of repetition in this section. I don't know if you caught it. Why do you think that is? Why so much repetition? Here's my guess. I think it's because maybe after years and years of idol worship, what the psalmist says is going to happen has happened to us. We've become blind. We've become deaf. We've become numb. And that is why there's so much repetition in the middle of this psalm. In some ways, verses 9 to 13 is like God ringing the doorbell three times. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, hello. Anybody in there? Or after a long winter in Vermont or in Massachusetts, it's like holding that windshield wiper fluid like for that long three seconds to get all that grime off so you can finally see clearly. That's what this is. Or as one student put it, this is like Aslan walking through that statue of the white witch, breathing on cold statues, right? One at a time, sort of drawing them back to life. O Israel, trust in the Lord. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. All right, written today, it might sound something like, O Americans, trust in the Lord. O Bostonians, trust in the Lord. You, yes, you, right? Trust in the Lord. You see, this public call to worship gets personal very quick. We can say the net is cast far and wide, and then it lands on you. And here's why. We have, I think, an easy time seeing idols in other people's lives, don't we? We hear sermons like this, and we nudge our spouse, listen up. We mutter to ourselves, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. But before this is a message for other Newtonians and Wellesleyans, it really is a message that God aims at you. You who trust in the Lord. After waking you up and getting your attention, what does he say? Look at verses 12 to 13. He says, I will bless you. I will bless you. I will bless you. Bless is an often misunderstood, and it's an interesting word. We say, God bless you after somebody sneezes. In the South, they say, bless your heart. 
But what does this word bless or the verb to bless actually mean? The Hebrew word for blessing, barak, shares the same root with the word for knee, which is barak. To bless means to bend the knee. It means to bend the knee to offer a gift. It means to bend the knee to show respect. And what is shocking about these verses is that we have here God saying, I will bless you. I will bend towards you. I will offer you gifts, as it were. I will show you honor and respect. And that is remarkable. You see, idols are inflexible. They won't move towards us. right? They don't serve us. We serve them. But God is different. God bends towards us. God serves us. He honors us. He blesses us. You see, how so? Well, verse 16 says that the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. And yet, and yet, right, the, the Lord Almighty, right, the maker of heaven and earth, stepped into his creation. Right, the Almighty One bent down and came to earth. And he bent down and he took on human flesh. He bent down and was born in a manger. He bent down, huddled over a carpenter's workbench. He bent down over the sin-sick and dying. He bends down over dirty feet to wash them. He bends down and draws a line in the sand saying, Woman, where are your accusers? And she says back to him, They're gone, Lord. He says, do, not, do they not condemn you? She says, No. He says, Well, neither do I. And here's why. Because Jesus bent down on a road to Calvary carrying a wooden cross. And then nailed to that cross where he died for the forgiveness of our sins, Jesus, his body bent down once more as his lungs collapsed. As his lungs collapsed. And he breathed his last saying, it is finished. But you all, that's not the last word. Because raised from the grave, Jesus will soon bend over ours saying, honey, it's time to wake up. The Lord has remembered us. And He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. And He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Indeed, He has. God has blessed us. He has blessed us mightily in the person of Jesus Christ. He is bent down and bent towards us in order to pick us all up. He's bent towards us in order to pick us all up. And this brings us to our third and final section, right? verses 14 to 18. And it's the third and final point of this sermon. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Right. The psalm begins with people bending towards idols in verses 1 to 8. But it ends with us bending towards God from this time forth and forevermore. 
from this time forth and forevermore means starting now. Starting now. From this time forth, right, into the future. See, we haven't done this or done this well, but we will. Right? We will from this time forth and forevermore. Well, what enables this shift, right, this transformation, from us bending towards idols to now bending towards God? Well, I believe what makes this transformation possible is what we've seen in the middle verses. Right? It is seeing God bending towards us. That's what's going to change your heart. That's what's going to change, right, what you're going to bend towards. See, I live on a party street in Burlington, Vermont, Green Street. Lots of Frisbee students, lots of outing club students, they love to party. And as I've lived there, I've reflected sort of on this, that God has made a home. He's always wanted to live with us in it. He created this home called Eden, right? But regrettably, tragically, we said that that house, that house party stunk. And so we left it, and we left it for the house party next door. But we get there, and we realize, look, this house party's not that great either. Maybe it's the music or the food or whatever, and we ditch it, and we go to the house party next door. That's not great. We're discontent, and we go to the house party next door. And on and on this goes, just moving from one party to the next, always in search of, like, the next best thing. The one thing we won't do is go to the house that we left at the very beginning, right, the house from which we came. God still loves us. And God realizes, though, that if he doesn't intervene, if he doesn't get involved, there's no hope of us ever being back with him. Right? So he leaves his house. He finds us now at that house party miles and miles down the road. And he takes us back home. And he washes us up, gives us a nice shower, gives us a nice home-cooked meal. And it's in that context, sort of back in his presence, back in his house, that we realize, wow, this is pretty good. Why did I ever leave? Now, of course, we're still free to. Any of us can go. But because of what we've experienced, because of sort of the bending towards, of God towards us, of course, we could leave. We just don't want to anymore. We just don't want to. You know, what's it going to take for you to be dispossessed of your idols and to make the switch? To put God at the center of your life instead of some other weighted thing? It is this. It's seeing God bending towards you and the person of Jesus Christ. It really is knowing His pursuit and His grace. Because you see, God deserved uh, to be at the center of your life from the very beginning by nature of His power. But God proves even more so that He deserves to be at the center of your life because of His love and His grace. So friends, make the substitution. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, and not to our idols, but to your name, right, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love, right, for the sake of your faithfulness. Amen and amen. Let's pray.